Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you would, join with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. Today, we are talking about the forgiveness of sins and resurrection. And Paul ties these very closely to each other. They are part of each other. Uh, If we're not careful, we will read through the creed and see each topic as a standalone topic. But believe it or not, they all flow together. And so in the first part of this message today, we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12. What Paul says there to the church at Corinth, who is, by the way, uh, under some heretical thoughts, Paul is correcting them one at a time. Uh, This is the one we'll look at today. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So just quickly for context, the Corinthian church believed that Jesus was profitable and beneficial in this life. So if you you become a Christian, that's great. Uh, You're going to be able to have the forgiveness of sins and the uh, freedom of guilt. And you're going to be able to experience joy and, and the graces that come with all of those things. And that's great. But they, they kind of had a fatalistic view that once you die, then so do all the promises. So they were very hopeful because they believed so strongly in the second coming of Jesus Christ. They thought it was taking place today. And so, boy, if we could just live long enough to see Jesus come, they believed that Jesus was only coming back for those who were still alive. Because in their minds, and let's be honest... They had a hard time understanding that dead people could come back to life. Jesus, that's one thing. We believe that that Jesus can come back from the dead, but they did not believe in their own resurrection. And Jesus is tying those things together. That Jesus' resurrection is proof. It's the first fruits. It's the, the foreshadowing of our own physical resurrection. They had a hard time believing it. Paul is correcting it. Let's go on to verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, that is our resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So he says, if you don't believe in a physical bodily resurrection for yourselves, then all you're saying is that you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. What is happening in the resurrection of Christ is everything he has accomplished now in the church through the Spirit flows right into each one of us. So now we, Paul talks about the resurrection power. We have that coursing through our veins. And they are discounting it, or at least not understanding it yet. Verse 14. (laughs) Excuse me. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, nothing else matters. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have 
fallen asleep in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul is saying to us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our bodily resurrection are tied together into one resurrection. We believe in ours because we experienced His. And so to discount ours is to discount His. In other words, His resurrection has enough power in it for everyone for all time to experience experience resurrection. Now, very quickly, I want to... I say very quickly. You know what very quickly means? Nothing. (laughs) It's just a transitional word is all really it is. Uh, But I I am going to try to do this because we talk about this a lot. Uh, So we are experiencing simultaneously three realities, right? We have the physical reality, we have the mental, emotional reality, and we have a spiritual reality. What Paul tells the church at Corinth is that spiritually we are dead, dead. We do not exist here. So in a lot of ways, when we confess with our mouth and we believe in our hearts the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. We are saved. And so it, it, before that time, the Spirit has been cut off from God. We have lost the image and likeness of God because of Adam's sin. And so in a lot of ways, when we proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and He empowers us with the new birth, we experience somewhat of a resurrection even then and our spiritual life becomes alive. And now we are alive spiritually, we are alive emotionally, and we are alive physically. Now because that is true, we have already begun to benefit from resurrection power. Because if, if Christ has not been raised, then our spirits will never be saved. That is the hope of the resurrection. And so spiritually, the, the word, well, let's, let's read uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. You already know it. I'll pause and see how well. For by grace, what? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should. Okay, so for by grace you have Being saved, right. So spiritually, by grace, when God's grace extends out of heaven, which that always happens first, God's grace extends out of heaven by faith, by my receiving the grace of God, by my faith, when faith and grace comes together, you have a second birth, a new life. So what Paul says is you have been saved, which means that in this present moment, I am saved spiritually. If I drop dead or Jesus returns, thank the Lord, I am saved. Because my spirit has been restored, right? So anybody who has experienced a resurrection in their spirit, a a second birth, being born again in their spirit, they will live forever with the Father. But if we die with a dead spirit, we will live forever in the lake of fire. It's pretty simple, because all we've got to take with us are two depraved realities. So, I am saved. 
right here spiritually. This is called justification. I am in this present moment justified spiritually. And the easy way to remember that is, you know what justification means, right? Justification, justification means it's just as if I'd never committed sin, right? It's not, it's not you know, pushed away or, or hidden. It's, I mean, my spiritual reality is just like I've never committed a sin. Isn't that incredible? So justified is just as if I'd never sinned. The second reality we're going to talk about is the, the mind, the emotion, the personality, the, the where we make decisions, how we feel about things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That means the word of God is foolishness to those who have not experienced the new birth. So if you expect unsaved people... To understand Scripture, it, it, they can't. It's, it's foolishness. It's a completely different reality, a different kingdom. He says, but to us who are... Anybody know? Being saved. To those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the Word of God to unregenerate people, foolishness. But the Word of God, the word of God to them that... Has or are being saved, it is the power of God. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse fifteen says, "For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved." Right. So this is a process. In theological terms, it is the word sanctification. So in this reality, I am what saved. In this reality, mentally, emotionally, attitudinally, I am being saved. That's the word sanctification. Sanctification. It is the lifelong process of have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. It's, it's the uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And our minds are being renewed day by day. So we're talking about I am saved here I am being saved, right? I'm in the process of being saved. And then the last one, and believe it or not, this is the most difficult one to believe when you, when you look at the body, the physical part of us. He says, to them who persevere to the end will be... Oh, come on, it's in here. Them that persevere to the end will be... Okay, what are we over here? We are saved. Being saved. That's right. Yeah, that's right. We'll be saved. That's future tense. Present tense. or Past tense. Present tense. Future tense. This word is called glorification. The passage of Scripture says we don't know what Jesus looks like, but whatever it is, we will look like Him. He's in a glorified state. This body, believe it or not, is going to one day be glorified. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be without scars and, you know, excesses of mass and, you know, no gray hairs and all of that. It, I don't know what it means, to be honest with you, but I know it's going to be glorified. So there's going to come a time where either Jesus returns or I die. We already know that, right? So when, when I die, 
This is immediately with the Lord. This is immediate with the Lord. This is immediately in the ground. Just like an acorn. You look at an acorn and say, man, that's going to be a big tree. If you don't know what an oak tree is, you'd never look at an acorn and say, wow, right? You'd never look at an oak tree and say, I'll bet you that came from the smallest little acorn. You'd never say it. This doesn't make sense. I remember when I was in Nashville, Tennessee, pastoring for a while, uh, this old fella, you know, just in that old country way that they have, we, we have, uh, he said something about, you know, uh, his wife. And he said, yeah, we, we planted her out there. So that's where she's planted, out there. And I remember thinking, man, that is so crass. I mean, it's so, ugh, planted your wife? But the more I read Scripture, he's more right than the rest of us. Because you take that old seed and you just put it in the ground. And while her present reality is with the Lord, her body isn't yet. But on that day of judgment, when Jesus has come the living and the dead, He is going to resurrect that body, and we are going to be presented gloriously after the purification process, and we're going to be something otherwise than what was planted, and it's going to be glorious. That is a terrible illustration of what happens, but I think we all can kind of process that together. One day, this body does not go to heaven when I die. These realities do. Whatever heaven means, wherever the glory of God is. But one day Jesus is going to come back and that's when we'll experience judgment. And judgment will be judged. I am saved. My sanctification is going to be judged at that moment, which is where all of the rewards and punishments will come from or stripping of rewards or whatever all of that's going to look like. This is not that message. But my body is going to be burnt up and everything that's going to be left is that which brings glory and honor to God and it'll be my, for my glorification physically. Right? I know this is really deep and this could be a message all into itself. I just don't have time to get into it. But we need to understand that we are experiencing a re Christ's resurrection. You say, what difference does it make if Jesus, Jesus bodily resurrected? Because that's the first fruits of my resurrection. Whatever was available in His resurrection passes down from generation of believer to generation of believer to generation of believer. So I need to know everything I can about His resurrection because that's where my hope lies. And if he didn't resurrect, there's no hope for mine. And if I don't live like I'm going to experience resurrection, it's only because I'm diminishing his resurrection. It's no accident that in the creed, the forgiveness of sins is connected to the church, the communion of saints. We looked at the character and nature of God, that He's three in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We've covered that we are a part of the church universal, globally. There's only one church. And we're called to one another, to commune with one another, to fellowship with one another, to hold each other accountable, and to encourage each other, and to stir one another up unto good works. So in other words, the Holy Spirit has come and has created a people that was not a people. And now the people have become the platform. We have become the platform by which the forgiveness of God is made visible to a world that desperately needs it. You ever think about that? You ever think about everything that the world, apart from Christ, 
When, when the world, apart from Jesus Christ, opens up the Word of God, what do they see? Foolishness. Because they don't have the spiritual eyes, spiritual aptitude. Even their present reality is not capable of understanding the ways of God. So thanks be to God that God gave the world a people to watch how that life gets lived out. He gave the world the great gift, and that is the church of Jesus Christ, who bears in their body His body, their thoughts, His thoughts, their spirit, His spirit. The church is the platform by which the Father presents Himself to a people who are far off. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that God is gracious and He is loving. But one of the greatest ways that we see His grace and His love is manifested in Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to read that in just a few moments. But I'm going to give you some context to that passage first. You already know the story. Most of you know the story. Children of Israel are in captivity in Egypt for over 400 years. And over that span of time, the work had gotten more and more difficult. In fact, it had resulted into abuse and beating, being used, and, and, and they had become slaves. And they began to cry out to God, this is unfair, life is cruel. God finally heard their cries and for whatever reason, the time was right. God sent them Moses. We know the story about all of the plagues and how one at a time he was getting the Egyptians' attention. And on that special night, God sent a way out. And Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the first hurdle is get to the Red Sea and, and they see Egypt barreling down on them and and, and God just flexes His might and just rolls that water back. And I don't know that there's a natural law that God does not supersede in this story. And He throws the water back and Israel walks across on dry land. And then when Egypt starts to walk across, water capsizes and destroys them all. They get to the other side and one of the first things that they do is God summons Moses up on the mountain. He says, Moses, i got some things I want to share with you in private. So you and Aaron come up here. Aaron goes up for a little while. We don't know why, but Aaron doesn't stay. Moses is not up there more than just a couple of weeks. And while, what's going on? Aaron comes back to the people, and they begin to gripe and complain. And they get ugly. And they start talking that bad about Moses and talking bad about God Himself. And Aaron says this. He has this great idea just to placate the people. And he says, if everybody would just take off your rings and your earrings and give them to me, we'll see what God does and we'll fashion an, an idol. And so what he does is he takes all of that gold and he puts it into the fire and they make it, they fashion it according to the gods of the Egyptians. And it says all the people went kind of hysterical. They got drunk. They started partying. In fact, the Hebrew word there is they played it says that it turned into some sort of a drunken sexual orgy with everybody involved. Aaron goes so far as to say in the great presentation to the millions of people who are there worshiping this false god, he says, Behold your God who delivered you from the Egyptians. I mean, can you imagine the blasphemy? God is watching what He has done for them. And here, just a few weeks in, they have turned their backs on Him. 
Moses comes down off the mound and he sees what they're doing and Aaron says, I don't know, we just threw some gold in the fire and this calf came out. Wow, that is awesome, Aaron. Listen to Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. This was God's voice put into Moses. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. In what way does God most greatly manifest His love? Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. In other words, he's praying for revival. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. There's two things primarily that I want you to get from this particular passage of Scripture. Number one, God forgives. Amen? God forgives. But how do you know that you're forgiven? I'm just going to take a quick poll. How many of you have ever committed sin? Good. How many of you ever committed sin and asked God to forgive you? How many of you have ever committed sin, asked God to forgive you, and still feel guilty for your sin? Okay, hands are a little lower, I don't know why. But, maybe you're just tired, it's been a long week. Uh, How do you know then that you have been forgiven? How do you know that you have been forgiven? If you still bear the wounds of your sin, I mean, has God shown up and said, you're forgiven? How do we know? Well, we believe by faith, right? What gives us the right to believe by faith? Here's what gives us the right. We have every reason to believe by faith because we look back at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His resurrection was enough to raise Him up and He died with our sin on Him. And His resurrection was proof that He put to end the wrath of God that abides upon the heads of men. And so if Jesus is resurrected, then God is able to forgive. And if God is able to forgive, then He can forgive me. Is there a sin that God can't forgive? You can't commit a sin that God can't forgive because the satisfaction has already been remedied. You think you can commit a sin that Jesus didn't know you were going to commit? Now if you look at all of the fundamentals of our faith already, we know that God is sovereign way before you get there. Jesus knows what sin was going to be committed 2,000 years after the cross, and He already satisfied it. God forgives. God forgives. And the second thing that I want you to know is that God's forgiveness to the world who opens this book and reads it, and it's foolishness, doesn't make sense. The way the world can understand God's love is to see God's forgiveness. And the way that the world sees God's forgiveness is watching the church forgive each other. Watching us live in harmony with one another. Giving preference to one another. Honoring one another in a competition. 
encouraging one another, stirring one another up into good works. When the world sees that, we give them a picture that they cannot see otherwise. You want to know why the world looks at the church and sees their own reflection? It's because that's what the church has become. You know, when you, were, when, when you used to go to the church at Ephesus and you get mad at somebody you worship with or the pastor does something, you know what you do? You either figure it out or you forfeit your faith. But you don't go to the church next door because there's only one in town. But you think about a church that hadn't had a split or groups of people in a church that don't sit in groups. Or you see churches all over town that were started out of conflict or, or disappointing one another or, or maybe some other form of unforgiveness. So you know what we've done now? If you get mad here, don't worry about it. Just go next door. Start all over. When it should become so inconvenient and unacceptable for the body of Christ to separate from the body of Christ just because they're offended. There's reasons to leave a church. There's right reasons and there are right ways. But just because we can't get along has got to go away. Because I'm telling you, the, church, the world can see that and that is no testimony to Jesus Christ. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. So God forgives. And number two, His church is where He puts the testimony of forgiveness so that the world can understand it and see it. Let's talk about what forgiveness truly is. I think it's important for us to talk about that because there is such a heretical idea of forgiveness. Whoever coined the phrase, just forgive and... Yeah, we've all heard it. Listen, it's a lie straight from the pit of hell. All right, It will paralyze your ability to forgive because we do not have the capacity to forget wounds. We can't. We shouldn't. To forget would completely nullify the whole point of forgiving. Forgiving doesn't mean that there wasn't a wound, but to forgive and forget is to nullify the wound. And we shouldn't do that. That's not fair to the wound. Well, also, you, you, sometimes we think of forgiveness as, well, won't be forgiveness until we're best friends. So how am I supposed to be best friends with somebody who's hurt me so badly? Forgiveness doesn't mean that you're best friends with the person who wounded you. Forgiveness means this. It means to release people. To release people from what they've done. Fully, freely, and forever. And that's all on you. Because a lot of times the people who wound us are dead. And we don't have the ability to make it right and be best friends with them again. We may not even want to be able to do that. They may, that may l cause us to live a life of woundedness. We wouldn't want to do that. God wouldn't want us to do that. So forgiveness is releasing someone from the wrongs that they have committed. Fully, freely, and forever. Let me say this. Your for ability to forgive is in direct proportion to your understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Pastor, you don't know what they did to me. I can't forgive them. If you can't forgive them, then you don't understand the resurrection. And I'm not saying that you deserve to be wounded. I, I would never say that. Don't, e don't even hear me say that. 
You didn't deserve to be wounded. But God was perfect when we wounded Him. And you know what He does? He forgives fully, freely, and forever. I so, said, well, I just don't know that I can do that. <laughs> Listen, you can't do that. That's why it's so important, Paul tells us, to live in the power of the resurrection. Because you can't forgive. You're going to desperately have to live in His resurrection power to be able to, from now on, live forgiving and being forgiven. So as His resurrection was effectual to give us forgiveness, His resurrection alive in us is what gives us the ability to forgive those who hurt us. This is why Jesus was so, it was so easy for Him to say, pray for your enemies. Forgive those who hurt you. Because He knew what was wrapped up in His resurrection. And He knew the character and nature of the Father. I just don't know that I can forgive them for what they did. Well, here's, the great, here's great news. So, sometimes those wounds come from the church. But here's great news for those of you who really do want to live out the Christ life. That's why God gave us one another. is to practice forgiveness on. And to have good godly accountability. To have people remind us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that we can constantly be saturating and marinating in the life of Christ. It's a whole lot easier when you're thinking about the wounds of Christ. Because when you're focused on your own wounds, it's going to be really hard for you to forgive. But when you focus on the wounds of Jesus, it is so hard for you not to forgive. That's why Jesus said, forgive those who hurt you just as you have been forgiven. Because it is the same power. The same power that God forgives you with is the same power that God puts in you to forgive those around you. So if you can't forgive, that's not a mer- that's not, that doesn't determine how deep your wound was. It does determine how deeply you trust the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul says, or in Exodus 34, Paul will say, but Exodus chapter 34 says that God forgives us in three different, for three different things. He, he uses three different words. Iniquity, transgressions, and sins. Verse 6 and 7. Iniquity, transgression, and sins. These words are unique in Hebrew. Iniquity means premeditated. Micah chapter 2 says those who lay on their bed at night conceiving of evil. And that's not talking about sexual sin because he says in the morning gets up and does what he puts his hand to. He's talking about premeditated sin. People who just sit back and say, I'm going to do that. Here's how I'm going to do it. Here's how I'm going to get mine. I'm entitled to it. Here's how I'm going to hurt people and wrong people in order to get my way. That's iniquity. It's, it's, it's the sin that David displayed when he is in the wrong place at the wrong time and he begins to lust after Bathsheba. And he plans out how he's going to bring her to his room. He plans out how he's going to kill her husband. This is iniquity. Iniquity. And David was a man after God's own heart because he learned the power of forgiveness. Transgression is less heavy and it is not necessarily premeditated, but it certainly is selfish. Transgression is where we say, I know it's a lie, but it's going to get me out of trouble. It's worth it. 
Or, I know that it's stealing, but who's really going to care? Transgression is when your selfishness supersedes God's command. Or you're entitled because of who you are. I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to do it. When you, feel, when, you, when you just feel froggy. That's what we used to say a long time ago. You just feel froggy, you got to jump. So you feel good about yourself. You feel like you deserve it. I'm going to do it no matter what God says. And then the last section area is sin. Both of these are under the umbrella of sin. But, but this particular word sin would imply sins that you commit. It just means to miss the mark. Things that you do that you didn't even know was wrong. Alright? Premeditated, selfishness, and unintentional. It says he wipes them all out. Is there a sin that you've committed that wasn't premeditated, intentional, or unintentional? Nope, that covers every sin. You can't commit a sin that doesn't fall in the realm of God's forgiveness. That's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful to know that Jesus knew exactly what sins we would commit and mentioned them in here. But, we need to be very, very careful because in verse 7 it says, But who will by no means, talking about God, clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Listen, God forgives, but God also hates sin. Hates sin and will not abide by it. Because God loves so deeply, He hates so deeply. And I want you to understand what I'm saying there. God in every Every mental capacity, in every attitude, in every feeling, He is 100% perfect and justified. So he, he can hate without sin. We don't have that capacity. But He hates your sin. That iniquity, that thing that you're doing right now, that transgression, that thing that you're giving yourself over to and justifying it and excusing it, that missing the mark, He hates it so much because of what it's doing to you. Because He loves you so much. He hates sin. People think that God, because God hates sin, we make Him into this cruel, far-off God who's so power-hungry. Truth of the matter is, He deeply loves you. That's why His wrath is so strong. And that's why His forgiveness is being extended to us. Because He loves us. It says that, it, that His Judgment will fall into the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You say, wow, do my children have to pay the consequences for my sin? That is not what, that's not what God is saying. What God is saying is that the, 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 the blind spots in your own life, your, your children are watching that. You already have a predisposition to sin. Every one of us has a predisposition to, to predispositional sin. We have certain besetting sins that get in our way. And sometimes those are character traits that are reproduced in our children because we all are born with a sinful nature, right? Chances are if you struggle with something, your children are going to struggle with it to some degree. So what's going to happen is when you are not living in forgiveness, forgiven, chances are your children are watching how you say, well, I keep my sins separated from my kids. My, sin, my kids don't know. My wife don't know. My husband don't know because I keep my sin secret. Well, here's the thing. Your children are going to struggle with that too. And they're not learning from you right now the attitudes and the characteristics of someone who is counteracting that sin. 
You may think you're keeping it secret, but we're not just supposed to bring those things to light. We're supposed to be feeling those things with right things. So we need to be modeling that for our children and our children's children down to the third and fourth generation so that they can know how to get it right. Not only does God visit that in the third and fourth generation, but God will also visit that forgiveness is available for thousands of generations, He says. So, what I want you to be able to see this morning is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be guaranteed resurrection. Because of the forgiveness that God has given you, you have the power to forgive. And there's not a wound too deep. You say, Pastor, I understand that, and I do feel bad for all the things I've done. In fact, I can forgive people, I just can't forgive myself. How many have ever thought that or said that? I just can't forgive myself. Well, listen, I'm going to make that real easy, all right? You, you never get to say that again after you hear this. So let's, let me just give you the scenario of, of a courtroom. You have the defendant and the plaintiff, right? You have the abused and the abuser. Would the abuser ever say, Your Honor, I would just like to say something. I forgive myself. Well, you're not the one that was violated. You, you violated this person over here. This person over here is the one who gets to give forgiveness, right? See, this is because we're out, we're so selfish, we won't even recognize it. I know we pat ourselves on the back and our sin was so I just can't forgive myself, like that's some sort of an honor thing. But listen to this, I'm telling you, that is putting yourself in a whole nother level. There's only one person that gets to forgive, and that's the person who was violated. And then the scenario of your sin, you're not that one. To you and you alone, Lord, have I committed this sin. It is your glory and your honor that I have besmirched, that I have ridiculed, that I have dishonored, disrespected, and I have thrown off. And you know what the one that you abused said? Forgiven of your iniquity, of your transgression, and of your sin. Forgiven only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Freely you have been given, been given now freely give. So who are we to sit back and say, well, I just can't forgive myself? Well, you weren't the wronged one. Trust in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and move along into forgiveness. It's powerful. So powerful. We can't hold on to that stuff anymore. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, that's His own life, He sat down at the right hand of God, that's His ascension, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, that's the crucifixion, He has perfected, that's the resurrection, for all time those who are being sanctified. He has placed His resurrection power in whosoever will for all time. His resurrection has more resurrection in it than we will ever need. And it's in His resurrection that we find life, forgiveness from God, and the ability to live at peace with all men. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that... Well, number one, I guess today I want to thank You for the Holy Spirit because 
Without it, I'm not sure these words would make sense to us. It seems folly in our nature that the way to strength is through weakness. But perhaps, Lord, this is one of the reasons why you told us to confess our faults to one another because we can practice forgiveness and stirring one another up into good works. So, Lord, I thank you for the communion of the saints. I thank you for the body of believers where we can act in accordance to the life of Jesus Christ together. And the world would be able to see by that platform who you really are. Help us to wear that heavy because we do represent your life in this world. Lord, I pray that that would be chiefly manifested as we live forgiven and forgiving. May the world see your love as they watch us. Live in harmony and at peace with one another. Honoring one another. Forgiving one another. Being patient with one another. Reaching out to one another. Esteeming one another more highly than we esteem ourselves. And in that way, Lord, may we experience your resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.